0: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, Doctoral Candidate in Neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at BFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Chiara Marletto about her new book, The Science of Can and Can't, A Physicist's Journey Through the Land of Counterfactuals. What if there was an entirely new way to consider the laws of physics which could deliver the next scientific revolution? This is the first book to be published on the new science of counterfactuals, which has been led by a team in Oxford University pioneered by David Deutsch and Chiara Marletto. A radically different approach to, physici- to physics is currently being hotly pursued by the author and other researchers in top universities around the world. It is the science of counterfactuals, or if you if you like of hypotheticals taken us beyond the assumptions and boundaries of Newton, Newton, newtonian laws this new approach to physics asks what a thing could do and measure what, that outcome allowing scientists to imagine a whole new suite of questions and answers about what is possible and what isn't within the laws of physics Marleto guides us through this new landscape theme by theme interspersing non-fiction sites with fictionalized stories that elaborate their meaning and give the reader time to reflect. Well, Chiara, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you with us today. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the global pandemic, well, in the middle of which we're still currently are really, could you perhaps reflect on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from the experience?
1: So my um, work is mostly uh, theoretical. So I, I do my work with pencil and paper and a computer. So in that sense, the pandemic hasn't affected uh, very negatively my, my work. In fact, I've had, in a sense, more time for... Um, thinking and for you know doing reading on the side and and so on. So in that sense, I've been very lucky. Um, I've had some setbacks with experimental collaborators because they actually had a very you know negative effect on their own work in the sense that they couldn't go in the lab for a long time. So in that sense, some things have slowed down. But on the, on the whole, I think um, my category theoretical physicists haven't been. Uh, that negatively affected by the whole business. I have to say, I mean, the major takeaways from the pandemic, uh, the, the, the most striking thing for me was this fact that um, we had to, as, you know, as a whole, you might, you know, thinking, thinking about the, the whole of humanity, we had to very quickly think on our feet in order to you know, solve a problem that we were not prepared for. And I think in this sense, I was really stunned by the, the way in which, you know, the vaccine research uh, was, uh, you know, just very quickly um, put together to, to provide a very, very strong and useful response in the form of creating, you know, very uh, effective set of vaccines that, that were the way out of this, of this problem, really. And hopefully they are actually getting us out now. So, in that sense, I think it's, it was an interesting thing to witness how, you know, knowledge creation has been like um, uh, a major factor in, in, in trying to, to sort out this huge problem of the virus. And, uh, it was quite nice to see also different new ways of doing, of creating a vaccine, such as, you know, this RNA based vaccines being, um, commercialized basically in a very, very short time by cutting through various admin um, you know red tape which you know wouldn't have been possible in normal times so that that was possibly a good a good side effect of the of this whole terrible business
0: yes for sure cutting on a bit of a bureaucracy so can you tell us a little bit more about yourself
1: um so i as i said i'm a theoretical physicist so my um, you know my work is mainly trying to figure out um, how some very basic phenomena uh, at the foundations of physics work. And I'm particularly interested in uh, quantum physics and in uh, quantum information, which is basically the theory of how, you know, computers can run on quantum systems. Uh, And and specifically, I've been interested in trying to beyond the quantum theory of computation with uh, a program which is called the Constructor Theory Program and that's kind of the focus of my research and I've been working on it with um, various collaborators including David Deutsch who was the kind of proponent of this approach. Um, he started the whole program while I was actually a PhD student and I think that's when I started working myself on the on the topic and then I um, advanced it and, and applied it to uh, various different areas of fundamental physics. So, so let's let's say the focus of my of my work. And more broadly, I think I enjoy. Um, so I'm kind of interested in a number of other things to do with uh, epistemology and um, theoretical biology. I quite like literature in general. So I I have a number of other sort of uh, side interests that I'm trying to cultivate as I'm
0: mm. doing physics. Were you always interested in sciences since you were a child or did you get inspired along the way?
1: Um, no, I think I I was... I mean, I think my parents somehow, especially my father, had this, um, you know, scientific bent in, in, a, in a way. But um, so in, in a sense, we were all discussing, you know, these things like um, how some curious phenomena that you can see in your home can be explained through physics. Um, But I I think my fascination with physics started quite late, in a way, maybe when I was a a teenager, so um, 15, 16. Um, And it it blossomed during the university time when I actually realized that actually theoretical physics was really very fundamental and um, had a universal take on physical reality. I think this idea of looking for universality in statements uh, is, is one thing that fascinates me very much. And this is why earlier on, I think, when I was a, a younger teenager and maybe a child, I was really into uh, literature on the one hand and philosophy. So I think I liked the fact that these two um, disciplines seemed to you know, um, try to address these general problems that are universal for the whole of humanity, if you like. And then I realized that actually physics does uh, an even better job at tackling universal questions because they're not just universal for the whole of humanity, but they're actually universal for everything in the universe. And, you know, can't get better than that, I would say. So that's how I got into physics.
0: So along your journey towards uh, uh, where you are now in the physics field, um, how welcoming did you find uh, uh, the whole environment and what roles did the mentors play and i wonder if you maybe would have uh, some advice to our young uh, and especially uh, uh, female uh, uh, scientists uh, who might be a bit hesitant in entering theoretical physics
1: i had a very good Experience personally, so I'm talking by experience, and I think my own trajectory was just perhaps remarkably lucky in the sense that um, I so I started with a degree that was very much um, you know dominated by by um, uh, males. So in a sense, that perhaps was initially. Um, you could say slightly, um, you know, something that would, that would um, intimidate me slightly.
0: Mm. But I
1: think I never thought that there was um, a problem and I really just went on based on my own interests and never trying to relate to, my, to the world around me more like as an individual rather than through a particular gender narrative. And in that way, I um, perhaps in that way or perhaps because I was lucky, I somehow never found a particularly unwelcoming environments around me towards, you know, uh, women. So I, I didn't feel this negative bias that I think I've heard uh, some other colleagues of mine who are also females had. Um, so in that sense, I was lucky. But I, I think one key thing was that my mentors were very much uh, empowering me as an individual. So again, this started in fact with my parents, both my father and my mother, mm. uh, who somehow never, you know, n- never hinted at the fact that um, my, um, you know, my, um, um, somehow my performance uh, in intellectual activities to be affected by the fact that I was a girl. And later on, I think my mentors in physics um, were just very supportive and they, they uh, somehow treated me, as I said, as an individual interested in something, as an expert. And I think through this, uh, you, you really relate to your subject in this direct way without going through this particular gender narrative. And I think this is very liberating. Uh, so in that sense, I think my advice for maybe younger my younger self would be to, to do exactly what I did in a sense of um, focus on what really uh, fuels your passion and um, approach the environment in this way as an expert in a particular field that you uh, want to master in the end. And, um, you know, no doubt you will find issues and problems as, as always, but I think if you approach the world in this way, in an open way, you um, there's always a way to find a path around these problems. And I think this is um, also a key to kind of improve this situation with women in science in a way, because, um, yeah, we really, as, as, uh, you know, as, as women, we, we need to, to set the trend and to show that actually we are absolutely as um, good as um, you know, any other um, physicist. And, and, uh, and the only way to do this is really to approach the subject in this completely um, unbiased way, in a way that you're just interested in something and you try to pursue it as well as you can.
0: Oh, this is so inspiring to hear, especially for our female and uh, other scholars from underrepresented uh, groups as well. So you bring all of your really deep expertise and also your passion, for your topic together in this excellent book, The Science of Can and Can't. So can you tell us what is it about and how did you come to writing it?
1: So the book is about a radically new way to um, formulate laws of physics. Uh, And it's inspired by this work that I've been doing, as I said, initially jointly with David Deutsch actually propose the approach that's called constructive theory and the science of Ken and Kant uh, is the poetic name for, for this approach that I use in the book um, and uh, so the, the, the way this approach works is that it takes a philosophy that's become um, very important within the field of quantum information where we have learned that The essence of quantum physics can be expressed through statements about what transformations are possible, what are impossible and why, as opposed to um, what traditionally is done in physics, where you state laws in terms of laws of motion, a bit like Newton's laws um, and the initial conditions for these um, dynamical laws. And so the idea is to take this approach and extend it to the whole of physics in much the same way that, um, for example, thermodynamics has done. So I think if you if you think of the way in which physics is formulated, very broadly speaking, uh, traditionally you have um, basically that the, the most fundamental statements are really just these uh, descriptions of, of how objects move in space and time. Mm. And um, so, so these are just trajectories, if you like, of objects. And you can do this with um, small objects like particles. Then you can try to look at um, more macroscopic um, objects, such as, for example, ourselves, if you like. And then you can enlarge your system up to the level of the universe. And uh, the hope, the holy grail for traditional physics is to find um, the ultimate low motion that tells you how the whole universe actually moves um, in space and time given some initial conditions and the narrative in physics is that once you have this law you've explained everything there is to explain however there are some exceptions to this philosophy and i think um, to this approach and one major exception is as i said um, thermodynamics so in in that field um, when you want to describe why, for example, a certain thermal engine can work in a certain way and not another, um, and why, for example, you can transform only a certain amount of um, heat into work with certain sound effects, you appeal to statements like the second law of thermodynamics, which is about impossibility. So, so the second law of thermodynamics says that some perpetual motion machines are impossible. Mm. And this is a statement that's much more general than any particular. Trajectory, because it really holds for all trajectories. Um, and, and it one go actually rules out uh, a whole set of trajectories for the universe where actually perpetual motion machines exist. And so this uh, science of Ken can and Kant tries to generalize this approach, which, as I said, is very powerful within thermodynamics, but also in quantum information theory, in a way that can um, enlarge the set of methods that we use in theoretical physics to tackle questions that at the moment we are not uh, able to uh, capture completely within physics. So some such questions are about the physics of living systems. Other other questions are about um, the thermodynamics of the very, very small scales. Uh, So, you know, uh, heat engines that work at the nanoscale, not just macroscopic ones that power our trains and cars and so on. And other questions are about the information theory of uh, theories that go beyond quantum theory itself um, towards the domain of quantum gravity, for example. And we are hoping that these new tools that the science of can and can provides um, can help us capture more of physical reality within fundamental physics than uh, it's currently possible to do. And the way I got to write the book is that I... Um, you know, I started working on this, as I said, um, with, with David uh, when I was doing my PhD. I think I met David and in Oxford, and, and then we started a collaboration, which was very fruitful. And then I developed uh, some of this, the aspects of the theory on, on my own, and, and uh, also I um, had to defend it and explain it to very, you know, many people, both on the, you know, in the physics community, but also there was an interest from biology and an interest from even the general public and somehow i developed a number of um written pieces where i was trying to explain these ideas uh, to myself as well as to other people in the most um, you know far reaching way that i could and because, since i write i actually like writing uh, it was very easy to try to move from there to actually writing a real book and i think uh, you know that was that was how it happened and so that's that's how the idea of the book came about and i then moved on to actually write the book which i really enjoyed because as i said i quite enjoy writing in general and uh, it was a very interesting exercise something different from writing about physics in the technical sense but very useful as an intellectual journey i think uh, as you understand better things because you are explaining them in simple terms you you, you seem to go deeper into a subject that you thought you knew, but actually you didn't know as 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 well as you as you thought.
0: Yes, for sure. And the book uh, really retains this uh, uh, character that you and you convey very complex uh, topics in a very approachable manner. So let's d- d- uh, dive in a little bit more deeply into the science part. So uh, you already mentioned that. Uh, there is the conventional way we view physics of motion. So, what are the some of the shortcomings of the current theories that you try and address?
1: Um, so, one uh, major shortcoming is that, as I said, um, when you so when you when you try to do physics in the traditional way, what you want to have is a um, Low motion for systems so that you can go in the lab and given some initial conditions for a given system, for example, I don't know the famous, uh, you know, apple that fell on on Newton's head, uh, you can then say, what is the trajectory that this particular object will follow? Um, once it's set on that, on that, in that particular initial condition, so uh, you know the apple can fall from the from the tree and then hit Newton's head, or it can be thrown at Newton's head. And in all of these cases, uh, it's important to set the initial conditions of the apple because that's what tells you where the trajectory starts, and then the the laws of motion that Newton thought about unfold. And this logic is is followed also by uh, general relativity, as well as by um, quantum theory, which are the two most fundamental theories of physical reality we currently have and that have superseded uh, Newton's laws themselves. Now, the, um, the problem here is that when you try to extend this logic to the universe, of course, you need initial conditions for the universe as well. But it's very hard at present to give such initial conditions. So there are some... Theories that physicists have proposed for the initial conditions of the universe, but they are not um, in the you know they are not as um, fundamental and as um, thought through as mm-hmm. say quantum theory and general relativity are, and so they are at odds with with, with the laws of physics mm-hmm. that we currently hold as the best explanations of the of the physical reality, and um, moreover, it's very hard to test them. So we are a little bit in this uh, dark situation where to follow through this traditional approach, which wants to give a dynamical law for everything, including the initial conditions, we have to give the initial conditions for the universe, but it's very hard to get uh, a good theory going for these initial conditions. And so the principles that the sense of Kant and Kant um, appeals to since they are about possible and impossible transformations on subsystems of the universe, uh, we are hoping to be able to use them in order to constrain indirectly these theories of the initial conditions, thereby um, going past and, and bypassing this problem of what are the initial conditions of the universe. So, in a way, um, one, so this major shortcoming of the current approach, which is how do we set the initial conditions of the universe should be solved by this new approach because we can explain the choice of initial condition in terms of these new principles. Um, so that's one thing. Then there is another problem with the current approach. And the, the, the problem is that um, the, um, the, um, somehow the, the, there are some phenomena that don't fit into this narrative of trajectories, no matter how hard you try. And some of these phenomena, as I said, are related to the physics of life, and others are related to the physics of information. And I think a very good example for this is um, this usual example that I like to give, which is, let's say I'm, you, know, you ask me, why is it that a given transistor in a computer is off at a certain time during a computation? Now, the one way to answer that question is to say, well, it's off because, um, you know, the initial conditions of the computer were uh, such that, um, you know, in a different region of the the hardware, other transistors were on or off at the start of the computation. So that's one way of answering. And of course, it uh, mimics this traditional approach to physics because it's all about trajectories of transistors and interactions between them and then their initial conditions. But there is a different answer that I can give you. And this answer could be, well, it's off because it's the end of the computation and the the computer was programmed to factor a number and the initial number was 15. And now that transistor, which is off, uh, encodes the number five, which is one of the factors of 15. Mm. And now this is a different explanation, you see. And it doesn't use trajectories or initial conditions but it refers to what could have been, what other outputs and inputs you could have had to the computer and to the program that happens to be running on the computer. So it refers to a number of um, possibilities. And these possibilities are the kind of possibilities that the science of can and can is all about. And uh, it turns out, actually, this is not just a fluke of this example. But all of the physics of information can be perfectly and exactly expressed within this approach of um, counterfactuals, so statements that refer to um, possible impossible transformations. And on the other hand, it's very poorly expressed with um, statements about trajectories of objects in space and time. And so by switching to counterfactuals as, as your basic things for laws of physics, you can capture information exactly. And it's not just information, it's quantum information as well. And then uh, the physics of life, which is based on information processing, uh, as well as other aspects of thermodynamics. So it's a very simple switch, but I think it can address this issue with um, some fields of uh, the traditional approach uh, to physics, which currently can at best express some of these phenomena that we haven't quite incorporated into physics and we want to do better. We want to have laws that are exact about these phenomena even though they are regarded traditionally as, as approximate and emergent in the traditional conception of physics.
0: So how can this counterfactual approach be applied to concepts such as quantum computing or energy conservation? Uh,
1: so the um, these concepts are already counterfactual in nature, somehow they are already uh, informally uh, uh, approached within physics in a counterfactual way. It's just that this is not acknowledged usually, so it's a bit of a counterfactual approach in denial, if you like. So starting starting with uh, like um, uh, the um, uh, you know quantum quantum computation or quantum information, um, the so. Th- the basic step of quantum information is to recognize that there are some aspects that are um, shared by all quantum systems. And these aspects are, so irrespective of whether the quantum system is a photon or an electron or, um, I don't know, a neutrino or some other particle that is quantum mechanical, and has some features that are different from the others. So all of these particles obey some general uh, principles that are about how they can process information. And this is the key intuition that the founding fathers of uh, the quantum computer had in the 80s and 90s. And somehow this is already counterfactual in nature because the basic thing that these systems um, cannot do is stated already by the uh, famous Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So this principle says that a quantum system, doesn't matter what its details are, must have at least two properties, two physical properties, like velocity and and position of an electron, for example, that cannot Mm. be observed or measured uh, with arbitrarily high accuracy um, simultaneously by the same device. So, you know, classically... You can think of a huge device where if you just insert a particle with some properties, this device can measure all of the properties of this particle and tell you um, with arbitrarily high accuracy what the values, actual values of these properties are. With a quantum particle, you can't create such a machine. It's impossible. And uh, if you could, then you would violate the laws of quantum theory. And this is the key to... uh, Explain how a qubit, which is the elementary, the most elementary unit information unit for a um, of a quantum system, differs from a classical uh, unit, which is the bit. Um, So a qubit is a system that can be a bit in many different, in equivalent ways, but all of these ways can be uh, jointly observed or measured. And so this generalizes the idea of of the uh, Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And if you think about it, this principle, which is at the core of quantum theory and of quantum information, is actually a counterfactual principle because it's about impossibilities. And then it becomes even more interesting because when you take two qubits together, the fact that you cannot perform some transformations on each of them, which is stated by by, uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, allows you to have more possibilities on the joint systems of these two qubits. So, for example, you can have things like entanglement, which is a special kind of correlation that only quantum systems have. Um, And then you can have, because of entanglement, cryptography, um, different schemes to create a a secure way of sending information based, in fact, on on entanglement, and therefore on the uh, Heisenberg's Uncertainty Principle, and so on. So I think uh, the essence of quantum information is actually counterfactual. And the reason why this is important is that when we are trying to understand what the successor of quantum theory will be in the context of finding, for example, a quantum theory of gravity, um, we need to have some general principles that are independent of the particular details of quantum theory uh, that can capture the foundations of quantum theory and the aspects that will survive once quantum theory is replaced with a new theory. And um, quantum information theory and its counterfactual extension that I'm envisaging with this research program um, is devised exactly to do this. So, it can tell you what are the resilient robust features of quantum systems that will still be there once we have discovered the successor of quantum theory. And so the conjecture is actually that things like entanglement and quantum superpositions and all of these phenomena that are at the base of quantum information processing power will still be viable in the new theory and will still conform to these general patterns of possibility and impossibility, um, even though they will be described with different equations and different dynamical laws. And this is how the principles of the sample can and can't more generally can guide us maybe to guess
0: the next uh, theory of physics. This is fascinating. And what about the concept of universality? Do counterfactuals also apply?
1: Yes. Um, so the the concept of universality is very um, it's, it's a very powerful idea that was. Uh, well, it was hinted at by already in the writings of this uh, mathematician that uh, worked in the Victorian times, Ada Lovelace. Uh, she worked with uh, uh, Babbage, who was a um, uh, well, was the inventor of uh, the first programmable computer ever known, um, at least in, in this modern times. So Babbage and uh, Lovelace worked together to create uh, what would have been the first programmable computer. Um, Sadly, it was never actually realized. But I think Ada Lovelace wrote um, in her notes that this machine could be programmed to effectively simulate anything, any motion that is allowed in the universe. And I think this is the gist of the idea of universality that was Mm. then, um, you know, fully uh, explored by Alan Turing with, of course, her universal Turing machine. And later on by by Deutsch, who actually was the, um, uh, you know, the, the person who pioneered the idea of universality within the quantum computer by proposing a scheme for the quantum universal computer. And the key idea of universality is really counterfactual because it's about the fact that um, with uh, given resources, a a suitable set of very, uh, of, of, of say, elementary interactions between subsystems can, uh, so bits or qubits, if you like, can uh, simulate to arbitrarily high accuracy any motion that is possible in the universe. And this is an interesting thing. So, you know, if you if you look at some dynamical equations, I don't know, for example, quantum theories, and then you say, well, you know, this, these dynamical equations describe how a dog uh, works. And, well, universality says that it's, possible to construct a, uh, to program a, a universal Turing machine um, to execute the motion of the atoms that compose the dog um, to um, any given accuracy. So, you know, if I, if I tell you I wanted want the simulation of the dog to be accurate to, to this degree, uh, you can find a program to do that, and then if I tell you no, actually I want a better dog, a more accurate dog uh, simulation of the dog. You can find an even better program to do that, and so on. And this is a very non-trivial thing. It's a very non-trivial property of the laws of physics. Um, it's a conjecture. It's a conjecture principle, if you like, that that all good laws of physics should be like that. And uh, as I said, this could serve also as a as a Guideline, if you like, for conjecturing future laws of physics in the same way that thermodynamics, for example, the second law, has always guided us when we were trying to think of um, how to refute some proposed laws of physics in the past. And the idea is that these new laws about information could actually, based on counterfactuals, could actually uh, serve the same purpose and make us even more well-equipped to
0: to guess future laws of physics. So you spell out very clearly why this new radical approach to physics may be necessary. So what would be next steps to be taken to actually incorporate cardifactuals into the physics field? How difficult or how easy do you think uh, this could be?
1: So I think this is a a program and it it will take um, some time to develop it to its full extent. And um, so one um, so one thing that, that we have been doing is to conjecture some of these new principles based on counterfactuals and then try to find connections between these new principles and experimental consequences, which is, of course, the way in which we want to go because we'd like to be able to test these new laws. Um, yeah, and recently I think there was a nice... Uh, Proposal to test quantum effects in gravity, which um, I put forward together with a collaborator of mine in Oxford, Vladko Bedro, and then a different team in London, uh, led by Sugato Bose, also uh, proposed in a slightly different form. And these two uh, proposals that, to test quantum effects in gravity, so therefore things that are very close to, um, if you like, experimental verification. Can be underpinned by um, some of these principles about information theory that you can express within the science of can encounter constructor theory. And this is nice because this fact gives um, a robust underpinning to these tests, which is something that we um, as physicists find always very exciting because the game is always to try to find. Uh, conclusions that are as robust and strong as, as 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 they can be, and somehow the the fact that an experiment is based on foundations that are not um, dependent on specific details of laws of motion, but only on these general counterfactual principles, is a very good thing. And so one one step forward is to find more examples of this kind where you know you can get a so to speak, a killer application out of these principles that you wouldn't be able to guess uh, without them. So that's one, one important way forward. The other important way forward is to uh, find mathematical tools to um, express the theorems that we proved and also the future theorems in a, in a more general way and... Um, Possibly to discover in even even broader versions of the of the theory that we have so far created. So in in a sense, this is a bit like having um, you know being at the start of the era of the theory of computation. So you know at the start of uh, what say Turing was doing, and um, not having fully developed. Uh, the whole set of mathematical tools that you need to express this theory. So we are in, in a similar situation now where uh, some of these principles are formulated with um, mathematical tools that are perhaps a bit rudimentary, so they are based on set theory and, and various other things of that sort. But, for example, there could be better expressions of them perhaps in category theory or in, in more powerful um, algebraic um, tools that you can, you can find in, ma- in current mathematics. So I think that's another direction in which I see a lot of development potentially could come. Uh, and finally, I think the the other important thing would be to, um, to show how the principles of constructor theory can be used in order to um, constrain the initial conditions for the theory of the initial conditions for the dynamical laws that we currently have. So I think that's uh, that's an important step because so far we've proven that um, you know the science of Ken and Kant is compatible with quantum theory and it's um, compatible with also uh, classical physics at least in the um, you know non-relativistic sense and we are hoping to be able to extend it to also being compatible with uh, relativity. But um, it would be very nice to be able to, um, you know, to, to, to then derive some interesting constraints from the principles on the dynamical laws rather than just showing that the principles are compatible with the dynamical laws that we currently know. So I think that's the third next step. And I'm trying to work on, on these um, together with some collaborators. And I think kind of there is a growing momentum uh, around these 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 issues
0: and so we're hoping to have more more progress soon so from purely intellectual perspective all of this is really exciting but many might find it a little bit ephemeral really and not really think that this could be practically useful so i was just wondering if you have some ideas on on what would be the most likely, even practical applications, something analogous to, for example, GPS, which, of course, uses the concepts from a very basic research.
1: Yes, I think um, this is a nice question because it touches on on, uh, on an issue which is somehow something that we theoretical physicists always um, in some sense, have at the back of our minds. Um, so every every theory that is found is, is, is kind of fundamental. So it's very uh, deep in some sense. So it's kind of examples of these theories are if you like quantum theory or general relativity or Maxwell's theory of uh, you know uh, light and 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 so on um, appears to be. That so all of these theories are usually very far from specific applications, and um, usually, uh, you know, they, they they might so someone who is working on developing them uh, might appear as simply following some um, some inner interest with you know uh, based on on some some quest for I don't know unifications or trying to understand a specific phenomenon better, but it's always hard to make a link between these type of problems which are fundamental and a specific technological application which may actually come out once you solve these problems. Um, mm. A similar thing happened with uh, Turing's theory, if you like, and in a smaller proportion with the quantum theory of computation. And I think I more or less, I mean, I talked to lots of people who worked uh, in the early days of the quantum theory of computation, where, um, for example, when David wrote his first paper on the universal quantum computer, that really looked like a curiosity that, uh, you know, most people within computer science, but also physics, were very skeptical of, and they were thinking that it could be like a philosophical curiosity, but, you know, how could it be connected to, to applications? And then, you know, step by step, I think... Uh, with, with uh, the work of, you know, many years uh, and many other people, there was a clear connection shaping up between that theoretical original proposal and the proposal of uh, other people like uh, Feynman, Benioff and uh, Charlie Bennett and so on, uh, and this whole enterprise of quantum technologies that we now uh, almost treat as a, almost like a, as an established commercial application. So in this sense, I think this is a general feature of ideas that are uh, very fundamental. And um, so the fact that they are far away from applications at first is actually a good sign in a sense because either they turn out to be wrong but in an interesting way and so this is actually something that opens up a new line of inquiry or if they turn out to be right, then they actually will have uh, very, very important uh, developments in terms of technology later. And now, in terms of the specific case of constructor theory, I think the most direct uh, technological application that could come out of it is, of course, the one that was already envisaged by uh, the person who actually coined the term constructor, which is John von Neumann. So the reason why constructor theory is called like this is because um, it is intended to expand on the, theory of computation, on the quantum theory of computation in a direction that goes along with what uh, von Neumann envisaged in the 50s. So von Neumann was this polymath who, not just, you know, he didn't just uh, provide most of the foundational ideas about quantum theory in the modern form that we know it, uh, but also was thinking about very uh, visionary uh, problems. And one of them was to have a theory of living systems in physics. And he noticed that uh, the Turing machine, as Turing conceived of it, is universal as far as computations are concerned, but it cannot execute some transformations that are physically possible. And some of these transformations are uh, those that the living, living systems actually enact and, um, so one of them is self reproduction. So you can think of a cell. A cell is capable of creating a copy of itself. Now, a Turing machine like our computer sadly cannot be programmed to create a replica of itself. And this is not because it's mm-hmm. ill designed, unfortunately, uh, but it really cannot. So in the Turing machine scheme, there is no space for uh, a program of this kind to be executed. A Turing machine can simulate a cell. Uh, undergoing self-reproduction, but it cannot itself self-reproduce. So for Neumann thought, I want to create a new machine, a more general, more powerful type of machine. And I'll call it a constructor, not a computer, but a constructor, something that can be programmed, not just to do computations, so it's not a computer, but something that can be programmed to perform constructions, physical transformations of any kind that are physically permitted under certain physical uh, theory. And the universal constructor is the ultimate generalization of the universal Turing machine. It's, the, it's a machine that can be programmed to construct anything that's physically possible. So it's like an all-powerful 3D printer, if you like. That given enough knowledge, enough, uh, you know, smart enough program software uh, can build out of raw materials anything that's physically possible. Now, the physics of canon and Kant Will provide is kind of designed in order to provide the basics, the theory of this machine, in the same way that um, you know Turing's original uh, theory was the underlying theoretical framework for for modern computers. And so, of course, this is very far in the future, very speculative. Um, the but but the, uh, the, the the you know the ultimate application of this work could be providing us with the knowledge of how to actually construct one of these machines. And and this would be a fantastic uh, boost to to technology in a way that we can't even envisage. Uh, And I think David Deutsch specifically is very interested in this type of uh, work. And I I think he's developing um, some bits of the theory along these lines. So, you know, in a sense, watch this space, more is
0: coming. For sure. And this provides with so many possibilities really. So, if you were to imagine when what kind of developments that could be possible in the future, what do you think you would like to see? For example, maybe more efficient uh, solar energy harvesters or more efficient batteries.
1: Oh yes, I think um, the so I think it would be very um, very interesting to see how uh one could build uh machines that constructors that can uh self improve uh in, the, in i mean improve themselves in the same way that uh for example cells organisms have been um, improving themselves with natural selection so i'd like to see what, what what would be very interesting um this is really futuristic it's almost sci-fi But it would Mm. be nice to see whether you could build a generation of of these constructors that are not yet universal, but when programmed with sufficient, um, with a sufficiently good program, uh, can then somehow undergo a spontaneous type of evolution within a certain environment and um, tentatively improve themselves in the same way that say, uh, natural selection can improve organisms with time. But natural selection is very inefficient. Uh, It would be very interesting if we could uh, devise the process of artificial selection in a way that these uh, nanomachines that are kind of competing with themselves within a certain environment can somehow, um, through this artificial selection process, and also through their own interaction, provide more and more robust uh, constructors with a slightly larger repertoire than, meaning a slightly larger set of things that they can do than what they originally begin began with. So it's a bit like, um, you know, when, when you look at organisms in the wild evolving from, say, bacteria um, to more complex uh, structures later, um, which then led to the rich, you know, biosphere that we currently have. I, I'd love to see an actual... Realization of this process in, in some kind of artificial lab, um, in in a way that that you know the person who created this lab actually gets surprised by the type of evolution that takes place for these programmable machines. I think we are very far from this, but I think that would be a, a very interesting um, enterprise to 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 implement and also to for which a theory is needed. So, so I think this would help us also understanding better life and, and various aspects of, of living systems that currently are not uh, understood.
0: So were there any discoveries along your journey to writing your book, The Science of Canon Kant, that surprised you the most?
1: Oh, that's a very nice question. Um, I, so I think um, I was, so I was surprised by the amount of unifications that you can find in different aspects of physics when you look at them from the point of view of counterfactuals. So it's very beautiful to see that, for example, you can um, treat classical and quantum information and also thermodynamics as emerging out of simple constraints of what you can and cannot do with certain physical systems. And so, therefore, it's not just you don't need somehow the the full um, laws of motion of classical physics or of uh, quantum theory like Schrodinger's equation to capture these things, but you need much less in a certain direction, much less in terms of laws of motion. You don't need all the details. And you need much Mm. more because you need to change the approach. You need to uh, care about what can or cannot be done on a physical system rather than about what happens to the physical system given a certain trajectory it is following. So I think this is a very powerful, usually when, when you get, um, w- when you unify things in physics, it means that you found a regularity that is in common between different things. And this helps you describe all of these different things uh, in a way that was invisible before you realize that they're actually all the same thing. So, in a sense, you know, this is the famous example. Is always Newton when you, when he realized that the, you know, the reason why the moon behaves in a certain way and the reason why the apple is falling, uh, the reason is the same. And in that, you know, a unification on that scale is huge, and is surprising, and uh, it's beautiful. And I think physics leads to such things. And in a way, the unification that I just described logically is is similar in the sense that even if it's on a smaller scale, I think it's, it's, it's really interesting that it gives you this insight, this powerful insight in things that appear to be very different from each other, like thermodynamics, quantum information, and classical information. And instead, you can treat them all in the same way. So that was one thing. And the other thing is the fact that um, the there can be laws that are fundamental and exact about objects that are usually regarded as macroscopic like computers or constructors so it's it's counterintuitive and um most physicists would regard this as uh, as as um somehow unorthodox because you know we've been told and and it's quite beautiful uh, the fact that physics has moved Uh, away from anthropocentric notions uh, through objective uh, statements about trajectories uh, which don't care whether humans or other entities of that sort are around in the universe. But now it turns out that by studying things that uh, appear to belong to the macroscopic domain and usually these things are supposed to be accessory and really parochial like as I said, computers and constructors more generally, you can uncover deep regularities uh, that are important for for understanding the fundamental laws of physics. Uh, I think this is underappreciated in the physics community, but I think we should um, we should take this on board and take it seriously more. And by the way, it's not such a new thing in a, from, from, you know, in, in a sense because thermodynamics already showed this to us. But somehow, since when thermodynamics was proposed, we've moved away from the fact from regarding the laws of thermodynamics as fundamental, and we want them, and we want to derive them from, you know, microscopic trajectories of particles. Whereas here we're saying, no, actually, there's a different way of looking at the laws, which actually takes, you know, trajectories as perhaps less fundamental. And by sticking to this way, the way of counterfactuals, you can capture some phenomena that you would otherwise regard as hopelessly um, far from, you know, from the fundamental physics uh, domain. While in fact they are very relevant for it and they actually are even helpful perhaps to conjecture future laws of physics that could be the successor of quantum theory and general relativity. So it's a very, very surprising insight, I guess.
0: Are these the questions that uh, get you out of the bed in the morning?
1: (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. I think it's... um... It's really um, a blessing to, to have, um, you know, it's, it's like, it's like having a, a ladder constructed to go to the stars, right? So, you know, every rung is, mm-hmm. is is a, is a, is, a, is something interesting. And I think having, I think this is true of all intellectual activities. I don't think physics is any is special in any way. When you, when you're really passionate about something or you have, um, um some beautiful problem to contemplate. It really is like a ladder to the stars. And I think it's it's very nice to know that the ladder is there when you wake up in the morning because you know you for sure that's an incentive to get out of bed and do something. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's it's very nice. It's very beautiful and I, I think I hope actually the most people who are involved with creative endeavours
0: um feel in the same way. Oh yes, for sure. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So, what are you currently working on, and what would be your next project? Uh,
1: so now I am working on um, a number of different things. I think uh, one important thing is to is this one that I mentioned earlier. We would like to have a connection between these uh, principles of the science of Kant can and, and some. Um, direct experimental prediction. So I, I'm working with also some uh, students of mine um, in, in Oxford uh, on finding um, a, an interesting uh, application within thermodynamics. And this is work I've been doing with uh, Maria Violaris. And then I'm trying to find also um, a kind of interesting application within the context of um, this experiment that I mentioned on quantum effects in gravity. So this is something I'm doing with Vlatko Vedro and uh, a student of mine who's called Simone Riavich. And um, finally, I'm trying to um, somehow guess uh, also some better mathematical f- formulation for some of these ideas within constructive theory, within the science of Ken and Kant. Uh, and it's something I'm doing with uh, another student of mine It's called Niseto Thibault Vidal. So I think, um, you know, this is like, takes takes up a lot of my time right now. Um, and then I'm I'm uh, um, trying to find new problems. So I think it's it would be very nice to be able to apply this... Um, these new ideas of constructor theory to new issues. And one of these issues, which is interesting, is um, how to understand clocks and time within uh, the science of can and count, because these principles that I talked about about counterfactuals don't mention clocks or dynamics explicitly. They don't have motion in them, they're timeless. And yet, we would like to be able to express. Clocks and dynamics within within the science of Ken and Kant. So I think this is another side project that I'm doing with uh, with David. Um, and uh, and then aside from that, I think physicists always read a lot. So I'm trying to uh, read as as much as many interesting things as I can. Uh, so that's where we get usually inspiration by by you know um, poking here and there things that maybe we're not really working on actively but we just find uh, fascinating and so I'm kind of um, looking for for the next uh, nice problem to address in this vast set of things that I'm not yet completely aware of uh, so I think this is this is what what I'm doing right now.
0: This sounds super interesting so where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book?
1: So I think there are two uh, websites. Uh, One is um, chiaramaletto.com, which is my personal website. And then there is uh, constructortheory.org, which is a website dedicated to this particular project with a lot of material that I gathered uh, along the way with lots of interviews to my collaborators, uh, also to myself and some um, you know, didactic material also for those who are not maybe physicists but they are interested in hearing about uh, these ideas These ideas in a more informal way um, and always, you know, writing an email is always possible so my email is um, chiara.marletto at gmail.com and I'm always happy to reply to questions And the book? Uh, the book is um... Advertised on, so it's kind of uh, described and advertised on both of these websites, um, mm-hmm. and so I think that and um, uh, Penguin website is also um, another um, good website for for you know looking up my book and information about it, um, and um, there are some uh, nice uh, podcasts on the um, internet uh, which you can find. Um, and, um, I think you can sort of look up, uh, some of these kind of nice, um, various podcasts that have been, um, created about, uh, my book. One of them is by Brett Hall. Uh, so there's a nice, um, description of some of the chapters of the book, if you're interested in, in that. And there's also an audio book if you,
0: if you're not into reading, but you prefer to listen, that's also possible. Excellent. Well, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. It has been truly illuminating discussion and I learned a lot. Same
1: here. Thank you very much for having me. It was wonderful. Thank you.